Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Elspeth Curry, your host today on the channel. This afternoon, we'll be talking to Dr. Deanne Williams about her book, Girl Culture in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, Performance and Pedagogy, a fascinating account of girl authors and performers from the medieval to early modern era. Deanne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Elspeth. It's great to be here. So before we jump in, I wondered if you could just tell our listeners a bit about yourself. Sure. I was born in uh, Vancouver, Canada and grew up in Toronto. I got my BA at the University of Toronto in English and Religious Studies. And then I studied at Oxford. I did an MPhil. Um, in medieval literature, and then went on to Stanford, where I did my PhD. I've been teaching at York since the year 2000, which is uh, quite a long time, <laughs> longer than I had ever expected, but um, it's a wonderful university. Um, I have amazing, diverse students and uh, the joy of being able to teach in my hometown. So your book is about girls and girl culture, and I was wondering what kind of first sparked your interest in this topic? Well, it was um, 2004, and I had a baby daughter, and I was on a a year's research leave at Clare Hall in Cambridge, and I was there working on a medievalism project but, um, you know, any new parent is, you know, completely obsessed. And so I saw the whole world filtered through the eyes of my little girl and started thinking about my own work and where she would fit in because I had fit her into every part of my life by that point already. So, um, yeah, so I started thinking about, well, where are the medieval girls? Where are the early modern girls? Uh, where do they fit into Shakespeare? Where do they fit into medieval literature? Um, and what was it like to be a little girl in the Middle Ages or in the Renaissance? And Um, So that really started me off on what has become my life's work I've written. This is now my my second monograph on um, medieval and early modern girlhood. Uh, The first I wrote was um, Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood. Um, And I've done many other spin-off projects uh, related to this this, um, research. Well, you've um, obviously found a, a great thing to research, uh, very pertinent to, um, and kind of sticking with some more modern girls that have influenced you. Uh, in your introduction, you talk about amplification, which is a modern way to support girls like Malala or Greta Thunberg, who is based censure for speaking out. Um, and you argue that you want to apply this amplification to girls in the past as well. Um, so I wonder, what do you mean by this? Who is your book amplifying? And perhaps more importantly, why do they need it? Well, I think the idea of amplification, I did a little research into it, and I think it actually has its origins as a kind of term, a kind of a term of feminist activism in uh, the Obama administration. I think there were people who said they, you know, in meetings that it was important to um, amplify the the female voices because it was so often that they would be shut out or um, discounted or not credited for their ideas. So, so that idea of turning up the volume on female voices is something that is um, really important to me. Um, I, I feel that the even the idea of the existence of um, early modern, uh, pre-modern girlhood has been kind of denied um, and overlooked um, and uh, considered to be basically absent or silent or fully disempowered. Um, And so a lot of what my work has done has been to look at um, small instances that have survived, um, you know, and then to amplify them, to to think about them in their broader context and to look really closely um, at them. But the, um, you know, um, Malala and Greta Thunberg, um, in a way, these are figures who 
don't need amplification, right? They are they are figures of um, incredible uh, courage um, and uh, um, and sort of v- verbal action. I'm thinking of Greta Thunberg's amazing uh, blistering speech to the UN um, about climate change. And also more recently, you know, the incredible activism of the Iranian girls um, in the aftermath of um, the uh, the death of Masa Amini in police custody. So there are many, many examples of strong, uh, active uh, girl agents um, and uh, intervening into, uh, into politics. And so I think there's all, that's also another side of it. There's the kind of the, the need to amplify, but then there's also the fact that I think that girlhood is a very powerful space of resistance. You can look all the way back to Joan of Arc. Um, and, uh, and that uh, again and again, we find these figures of, um, of, very, of very strong and rebellious girls. Uh, so I wanted to um, really look closely at that. Uh, kind of uh, extraordinary energy. So going back to the earliest figure in your book, um, can you tell us a bit about Kraswita of Gandersheim? Uh, who was she and why did she write? Hrotsvita of Gandersheim was um, a canoness uh, at Gandersheim Abbey in Germany. Um, her dates are 934 or something to 973. Uh, so 10th century Germany, the, uh, the Ottonian dynasty. And these are um, rulers who were both extremely ambitious in terms of um, uh, their own um, empire uh, and also uh, spiritually ambitious in terms of their Christianity. And so um, the daughters of the Atonian uh, kings were often um, sort of given these abbeys to preside over, and they became these kind of courtly spaces as well as uh, important royal and political uh, courtly spaces um, and also sites of, the, um, of, of learning um, and of uh, of the record keeping and um, uh, sort of historical uh, memorialization of um, of the dynasties. So um, so Hrotsvita was part of this, a, a highborn uh, girl who who, um, who joined the abbey and was taught by Abbess Gerberga, who was herself the niece of Otto the first. And so it's this space of um, very elite, uh, very upper upper class um, medieval girls um, who were studying Latin just as uh, young boys were studying um, in the Middle Ages through the process of scenica lectio, so the reading of, of passages um, as well as your translation and composition in Latin. So we can think of her plays as um, as schoolroom uh, exercises or schoolroom projects uh, geared to the uh, education and edification of the girls that um, were, were learning Latin at Gandersheim Abbey. And oh, sorry, yeah, go oh, ahead. No, I, I was just gonna say. <laughs> yeah. So mm-hmm. you um, you talk about how she takes this model provided by Terence, mm-hmm. um, the classical author, and adapts them for her particular student body, in this case, other elite girls learning Latin. Um, I wondered, could you walk us through one of her plays and just illustrate how she how she makes these adaptations and what her goals are with them? Sure. Uh, Terence was hugely admired um, for his um his stories, his comedy, um, his incredibly mellifluous Latin style. Um, and he was read throughout the Middle Ages um, in the classroom. Um, but you can kind of imagine Hrotsvita encountering Terence as a schoolroom reading material uh, with her Latin teacher, Gerberga, and being horrified by what she found there, you know, the girls that she found there, the um, the, the pregnant, um, uh, unwed 
slave girls um, and survivors of sexual assault. Um, all of these are uh, fodder for Terence's uh, comedy. And in fact, Terence's dramas are very girl-focused in that sense. They often really hinge on the resolution of um, of this of, of, a, of a girl's body. How is it going to be properly managed, disposed, claimed? Um, and so, uh, one key example for me, one favorite example for me, is Hrotsvita's um, Delkitius, which is one of her best-known uh, dramas as well, um, in which Delkitius is the um, the governor of uh, Thessaloniki um, under the emperor Diocletian, and he um, is uh, has as his uh, intention the desire to to um, to seduce these virgins. Um, and in fact, he describes them making a kind of interesting classical illusion. He, he describes them as, as bacanter, uh, bacantes, um, like maenads, you know, the, um, the wild women of classical drama, um, the uh, uh, revelers and worshipers of Dionysus. Uh, so this is how he, this is how he envisions the girls. Um, and he locks them in a kitchen cupboard uh, with the idea that he's going to um, assault them there. But, um, but they uh, magically allow, uh, manage to get him locked in the cupboard. And he, um, in a, in a kind of weird fit of passion, starts making love to the dirty pots and pans in the kitchen, and they mock him mercilessly. And so it's a really interesting example of the way that um, Hrotsvita really turns the tables on Terence. We have this figure of masculine desire and license um, in Dilkidius. And um, we, we have, instead of the girls being, uh, being uh, vulnerable to him, we have them triumphing over his passions um, and then using, uh, using their language um, and their wit to, uh, to mock him afterwards. Mm. So moving forward a little bit in time, um, thinking now about the Entown Mary play and the Candlemas play, um, what do these plays tell us about girls as performers in late medieval England? Well, in short, what they tell us is that girls performed in liturgical drama, which has often not been considered to be true. So it shows us that girls, uh, girls uh, performed in, for example, um, the um, uh, the visit to the sepulchre by, uh, in, in, uh, at Barking Abbey, um, um, they performed in um, in in France in um, Philippe de Mezières' uh, presentation to the Virgin, um, thirteen seventy two or so. Uh, so there's this existing tradition of girls uh, of girls performing, and the two examples that you mention, um, the Digby Candlemas play um, and the Entown play, show two really um, important aspects of girl performance through the Middle Ages and early modern period. So the Digby Candlemas play has girls um, bearing candles and uh, doing a little dance and singing and performing um, um, in, in, this, in this drama. And the Entown Mary play has a little girl actually delivering dramatic speeches. So um, the Entown Mary play is an interesting uh, example because it actually asks for a little girl around the age of three, but uh, it's hard to imagine a three-year-old um, delivering the kinds of speeches um, that it uh, it requests. Um, so it's so that poses an interesting question. Um, uh, certainly, we're familiar with. Um, the uh, prodigious capacities of uh, young children, um, you know, uh, re reading and memorizing things at young at young ages. Um, so it's possible there was a little child prodigy uh, involved, but I think more likely is the fact that the child, uh, perhaps an older child actor, was 
uh, costumed, um, as they say, and as they re request it in the stage directions in in, in white clothing. Um, and the idea is that the child was meant to resemble a three-year-old, but perhaps uh, actually was this, the part was performed by a slightly older child. If you look at um, artistic representations of um, the presentation of the Virgin Mary to the temple, and there are many of them, you often see a child who doesn't really have that kind of uh, chubby toddler quality of the three-year-old, but looks a little bit, a little bit older, you know, more like a child of nine or 10. And we can imagine a child at that age actually accomplishing quite a lot, um, especially since a lot of the lines that the End Town Mary play, Mary uh, performed were, uh, were extracts from the Psalms. Um, and those would have been sung collectively. So we can also imagine a kind of a collective community kind of performance that would have supported the child in, uh, in their own performance of that part. So thinking a little bit more about the figure of Mary as a performance and uh, that legacy, uh, you argue that Shakespeare incorporates some of the Marian legend into his character, Juliet Capulet. Um, so what's your basis for this interpretation and how do you think it enhances our understanding of his perhaps most famous uh, heroine? Right. Um, so the end town uh, play of the Virgin um, Mary is of the girlhood of the Virgin. It's it's based on a uh, a set of apocryphal narratives about the girlhood of the Virgin Mary, which are. Um, uh, are not uh, described. It's not a, a story that's described in the Bible. Um, so, so, but everyone was really interested. What's her backstory? So, there are apocryphal narratives that describe the Virgin at the age of three, being presented to the temple elders and demonstrating her prodigious learning, teaching them, and then at the age of fourteen, when she's betrothed to Joseph. And think about Shakespeare's story of Romeo and Juliet. And those are actually the ages at which we see or hear about Juliet. So the nurse describes Juliet at age three, um, falling on her, uh, falling on her back. Um, and um, she also describes um, you know, how she was just finished weaning. So it's very specific at uh, this, uh, this age. Um, and then we see Juliet again at not quite 14. So Juliet inhabits those, those moments in the Virgin Mary's girlhood uh, herself in Shakespeare's play. And the play itself is filled with references that evoke the Virgin, Holy Dam and um, Lady Bird and Maidenhead. Um, all of these epithets come out and uh, evoke evoke the Virgin. Um, we can even think about, you know, the iconic moment when um, when Juliet is in the balcony as a kind of a revisiting of the story of the Assumption of the Virgin, where she's represented artistically uh, as uh, as uh, as above us in space. Mm. So moving from a famous literary figure to a famous historical figure, um, Anne Boleyn is, I would argue, probably the most well-known uh, historical figure who you discuss in your book, um, although she's famous for events associated with her adult life um, rather than her girlhood. But what sources uh, from her youth have survived and what do they tell us about Anne and the world she inhabited? Well, there are two really important documents that I discuss in my book. The first is a letter that she wrote to her father um, from Mechelen in Belgium, um, where she was working, or not, well, well where she was being raised uh, by Margaret of Austria um, and educated along with a lot of other little uh, royal uh, and aristocratic children. Um, and her uh, idiosyncratic and adorable French describes how uh, she's been told that she's been studying very, that she's been very successful, she's been studying very hard, um, and that she hopes that her father will visit her sometime soon. Um, uh, Thomas Boleyn must have leapt at the opportunity to uh, to network with all of those future little heads of state, not to mention Margaret of Austria. Um, so we see here uh, that Anne Boleyn uh, is as a child um, living in living in a, 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 in Europe, um, learning French, um, uh, and already really being groomed for a, uh, an important political role by her father. 
Um, and the second document is a music book, Anne Boleyn's music book, which is currently in the Royal College of Music. Uh, and I was able to see it when I was researching the book. And um, it's a wonderful volume, quite a small uh, workmanly kind of volume. It's not a fancy uh, royal presentation manuscript, but it feels more like a, a kind of a commonplace book. Um, there's lots of space for more songs to be added. Uh, it feels very much like a work in progress and it contains a lot of Latin religious music, mostly motets, uh, many of them by the most famous uh, composers uh, of the age, Josquin Desprez, Loiset, Compère, uh, Jean Mouton. Um, and um, they together represent Anne's um, re religious devotion, which is something that is often overlooked. Uh, her incredible, uh, incredibly uh, devout um upbringing, as well as the close connections between women that they represent. The songs are, um, are, are um, uh, broken down into parts for female voices so that um, they're arranged for a group of women performing in in private. Uh, the, the book can be traced to the time that Anne Boleyn spent in uh, at the court of Claude de France, um, uh, that also included Claude de France's young sister Renee, and so we never think about Anne Boleyn as being, um, you know, with her besties, <laughs> um, and uh, and surrounded by you know uh, close female friendships. I think we often think of her as uh, in opposition to Catherine of Aragon, um, and uh, perhaps more uh, alone. Um, but in fact, she was, um, as a girl, surrounded by other, other girls and women um, and uh, performing religious music uh, as a pastime. But also the songs themselves, uh, many of them uh, in celebration of the Virgin Mary, uh, celebrate motherhood and maternity and childbirth, um, all connected to, of course, the Virgin and the Nativity. But we can also see in them, um, you know, the narrative that Anne Boleyn also would eventually follow and the importance of marriage uh, and uh, the end of childbirth and of the production of a male heir um, for, uh, for her husband, Henry VIII. So you touched on this a little bit, but um, how how do you think that this knowledge of her girlhood should change uh, Anne Boleyn's legacy? Well, Anne Boleyn is so kind of sexualized, right? All from from the you know from the very uh, beginning of the stories of her incest with her brother and her affair with the lutenist and maybe she had six fingers and so there's this whole sexualization and kind of you know um, fascination with her body but this really emphasizes her mind her capacity to um, to learn language in fact she was she was learning learning French um, as a child, uh, the idea was that she would come back to England and in fact teach Catherine of Aragon who didn't have very good French. It's kind of astonishing to contemplate. Um, but that was the idea. So we have, um, you know, uh, a very intelligent person who's able to uh, navigate a foreign country uh, at a young age, um, make friends, um, lifelong friends um, who would continue to send her books after her marriage, um, and an, an incredible kind of intellectual um, inquisitiveness as well. Mm. So sticking with that idea of um, bilingual ability or multilingual ability, girl translators are a big theme in your book, um, particularly girls who are translating plays. Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about Jane Lumley, who's someone you focus on. Um, so who was she in brief and what did she translate? Well, Jane Lumley was the daughter of Henry Fitzalan, Earl of Arundel, who was a major Tudor court insider. Um, and she married um, uh, John Lumley, uh, first Baron Lumley. They were also really important uh, Catholic family um, in, uh, in the mid 16th century. Um, she was born in 1537 which is the same year as her cousin, Lady Jane Grey. 
and so we can think about their uh, their stories and their childhoods um, in connection. Um, she was married in the early 1550s to John Lumley, and her translation of Euripides's Iphigenia probably dates from around that time. It's an interesting thing I discovered as I was researching my book, that there's this kind of sweet spot often um, related to, uh, you know, teenage marriage where a girl is married but not living with her husband. There's often a kind of a, a separate um, uh, envisioned period of cohabitation. So she's she's still... Um, you know, uh, enjoying her girlhood freedoms. And that's often the time when she is most creatively, um, creatively productive. So this was the time when Jane Lumley probably was, was, um, was translating Euripides' Iphigenia, which is, you know, the first translation of any Greek drama into English ever, not just by a girl or by a woman, just the first. Um, and this translation took... Uh, takes its place among a series of other translations that her brother Henry and sister Mary and stepbrother John were also uh, um, accomplishing. Um, we can imagine a kind of little uh, little schoolroom, little Arundel family schoolroom, um, perhaps presided over by her stepmother, uh, Mary Ratcliffe, who was also a very educated person. And they were collected um, in the Lumley Library, so the library that her husband um, uh, amassed. He was a tremendous bibliophile. Um, and the catalog mentions that the, the translations were accomplished when they were young of their own handwriting, um, bound up together. So we can think about the sort of sibling group being reproduced in the manuscripts as well. Um, so yeah, so she translated this play, uh, which is about the sacrifice of the daughter Iphigenia um, by Agamemnon. It's a major story in the Trojan narrative. And we can also draw certain parallels between, uh, and many scholars have done, between the sacrifice of Iphigenia so that the Greek ships can travel uh, to Troy to rescue Helen. Um, uh, and the and the sacrifice of so many other Tudor figures, and most notably Lady Jane Grey, who, uh, as I said, was the cousin of Lady Jane Lumley. So as she translates, what sorts of edits does Lumley make to the text? Uh, and how does the medieval precedent of English plays uh, about women kind of help us understand uh, the changes that she makes? It's it's fascinating to look at the changes that Jane Lumley makes to the Euripidean original. For many years, they were discounted as uh, something, uh, passages that were too difficult. The Greek was too hard. She had to skip over them. Oh, she's such a lazy translator. Um, but if you look, you can actually see a very coherent editorial program where what she's doing is she's kind of cutting out all of the extraneous Trojan material, all of that noise, all of that political stuff. She's focusing very closely on the character of Iphigenia herself. And so passages about the Trojan War and the background and all of these kinds of um, poetic passages by the chorus or uh, accounts of how, you know, how sexy the soldiers are. None of this makes its way into um into Jane Lumley's version of the story. And so she's really refashioning a classical tragedy in the tradition of this medieval tradition of the saint's life to make the story of Iphigenia more resemble that of a saint's life with the focus on that character and on her sacrifice. We did a reading of um, of the play in at the University of Auckland, and we had a little talk back with the actors afterwards. And the actor playing um, Iphigenia said that she really felt uh, at this increasing distance over the course of the reading from the other characters as Iphigenia kind of, um, you know, distances herself from her family and faces the sacrifice very bravely and heroically as an individual. She said she really felt that powerfully as an actor on stage. 
So you argue that, quote, Lumley's Iphigenia thus speaks to the endless and unresolvable negotiations between vulnerability and self-assertion that are endemic to the experience of girls. So what was it about girlhood, or in this case, elite girlhood, that brought about contradictions? You've talked a little bit about the opportunities that uh, it could provide for creative output, but um, yeah, what what kind of other aspects of girlhood uh, produced these? Yeah, girlhood girlhood was um, an an amazing time of uh, accomplishment and and possibility. If you look at um, you know at at, at Jane Lumley, uh, you know she accomplishes this um, uh, path breaking translation as a teenage girl, uh, and she um, goes on after marriage to, as far as we know, not do any more creative uh, or academic work. Um, Her children died uh, in childhood. She died um, before she reached, or I think she was about 40 when she died. So um, seems quite young uh, from our perspective. Um, And so uh, that, that, that really represents the um, incredible um, tension between uh, a space of education that was opened up for girls and was enjoyed by girls, um, pretty much in the aftermath of Thomas More and his own experiments with his with girls' education. Um, and then the realities of, of marriage and, and wifedom that, that led to um, things really shutting down for them. Um, we can also think of Lady Jane Grey, right, who is memorialized in uh, Roger Ascham's uh, Schoolmaster as merrily reading uh, um, Plato's Fido, um, while the rest of her family romp outside, this kind of incredible figure of uh, of learning, um, of dedication to learning, um, and of course, you know, she was ultimately um, a pawn in the political maneuverings of, um, of 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 courtiers, including Arundel himself, who was you know her uncle. Um, so uh, and so that sacrifice. Um, so. It's um, or or even if we look at Anne Boleyn as well, another very tragic figure, um, someone whose childhood, whose girlhood was full of um, adventure and excitement and challenge, and um, and then um, ultimately victimized by her husband. So yeah, so there's this real there's this real this real tension, um, but it also I think means that it, it's important for us to look really closely at girlhoods um, because that is such a significant space in terms of a woman's development. We still feel in touch with our girlhoods, even as grown women. It's true. Yeah, at least I can attest to that. Um, So many of our listeners, uh, myself included, have probably seen a Shakespearean play before, uh, or performed at least, uh, but probably not an Elizabethan country house entertainment or a Jacobean mask. Uh, I have seen neither of those, um, which were two popular early modern theatrical performances in which girls uh, were often performers. Um, could you describe what what it was like to watch one of these, what they were intended to be? Sure. Uh, you know, part of my uh, um, project is really to get these plays performed um, so that it's possible for readers to have more of a lived experience of these texts as they are performed. So um, we have a staged reading of um, Elizabeth Carey's Tragedy of Miriam, as well as um, uh, Jane Lumley's Iphigenia and other other things in the works for precisely that reason. It's really, really amazing to see how these plays work uh, on stage. So um, the Bisham Entertainment performed in 1592 was uh, composed, devised by Lady Elizabeth Russell herself, uh, the product of one of those extraordinary uh, Elizabethan um, girlhoods as the um, one of the four daughters of, um, of uh, Sir Anthony Cook, uh, who uh, famously uh, educated his his daughters, um, and she writes uh, uh, an entertainment f- uh, so that her her own daughters Elizabeth and Anne can perform for Elizabeth at their home um, in uh, Bisham Abbey. 
while Elizabeth was on her progresses um, through that part of the Cotswolds. So we can imagine a beautiful country house, uh, beautiful gardens, um, the queens there, and the opening uh, speech uh, performed by a wild man, a very well-known figure um, from Elizabethan poetry and drama and uh, court uh, performances, uh, delivering a speech where he basically um, performs his um, civilization, uh, his movement from, um, from wildness to civility um, because of the presence of the queen. Um, and then we have the daughters, Elizabeth and Anne, performing as the shepherdesses, Isabella and Sibylla, uh, who are um, um, uh, sewing, uh, doing, accomplishing needlepoint, um, sewing in their samplers. And they uh, have a kind of dispute with the god Pan, um, who is really teasing them. You know, he says, why are you... Why are you sewing in your samplers when you should be penning sonnets? Which is a great allusion to the um, uh, the reputation that these girls and their mother had for uh, for 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 learning and for writing as well for authorship. And um, they uh, resist his attempts to woo them and um, ultimately sent him off trotting down the hill to uh, to to find Ceres, the mother goddess um, uh, and her nymphs. Um, and that uh, image of Ceres and the nymphs is meant as a kind of a mirror reflection of Elizabeth and her own court uh, and her ladies in waiting. So that would be a country house entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. I have visions of some of those great uh, mansions out in Newport, Rhode Island. I think maybe we could yes. wrestle up a, a great a great show at one of exactly. them, perhaps. Um, that would be a beautiful setting. What would a mask be like, or what, what determined that uh, type of performance? Right. Well, a, a court mask... Um, it it was it was like it was like a country house entertainment like this where there was royalty present and the and the performance was meant as an elaborate compliment to uh, to to royalty and there are many many masks written by Samuel Daniel and Ben Johnson um, for King James but this mask that I'm about to tell you about Cupid's Banishment um, was written for Queen Anne um, in 1617. Queen Anne was then living separate and apart from her husband uh, at Greenwich. So it was her own little rival court there. And the ladies of Deptford College, uh, Deptford School for Girls, I think it was called, Deptford Ladies Academy, um, performed along with some other uh, boys, um, children of Jacobean court insiders, um, a, uh, a mythological narrative, um, like, uh, like the Bisham entertainment drawing on mythological figures. Um, in this case, the story of Cupid, who is not represented as an adorable cherub, but more as a kind of a surly adolescent who's banished from the court by Diana. And the structure of this mask mirrors the kind of classic Jacobean court mask where we have the the orderly part of the mask and then the anti-mask of disorder. And Cupid and his followers represent that kind of disorderly energy. Um, And like like the Bisham Entertainment, um, the the tension, the dramatic tension is accomplished through through verbal teasing. Um, Cupid insults the girls. He calls them milksop ladies, which uh, evokes their kind of like nursery school milk and bread um, snack Um, and uh, sort of evoking them as uh, or describing them as like as little girls, right, as children, milksops. Um, And uh, he also calls them uh, squeamish, um, which is uh, a term which has seemed, it seems to have a kind of interesting uh, historical relationship to girls and girlish disdain. Um, so, uh, ew, right? <laughs> we can imagine girls saying, yuck. Um, so, uh, so Cupid is poking at, 
at the girls um, verbally. Obviously, we can't imagine him insulting or assaulting them uh, on stage in any real physical way in front of the queen. Um, but he's ultimately like Pan, uh, civilized by a group of nymphs all performed by the girls of the um, Ladies Academy uh, at Deptford, um, dancing and singing and also presenting Queen Anne with their needlework. So needlework is also uh, a common thread uh, in uh, the Bishop Entertainment as well as in Cupid's Banishment. Uh, the accomplishment of needlework, of course, is a um, very important way that early modern girls um, were able to express their creativity um, and often quite subversively. Mm. So in both the Bisham Entertainment and in this mask for Queen Anne, like you mentioned, um, there are shepherdesses and there are nymphs and these all these classical figures who girls are performing these roles. Um, and I enjoyed the titles of two of your chapters, one which was uh, Faithful Shepherdesses and then Wanton Ambling Nymphs. So the titles there kind of suggest that there were different meanings associated with shepherdesses and nymphs in the early modern world. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what distinguished a shepherdess from a nymph and how girls kind of participated in that assemblage of associations? Absolutely. Uh, shepherdesses... Their uh, origins are in the incredibly learned tradition of pastoral dialogue with shepherds, uh, reclining, uh, debating, um, describing, uh, lamenting their love, uh, creating uh, poems, writing poems and uh, performing songs. So this is a very, this, this space, which goes all the way back to Virgil, this pastoral space, um, is um, uh, extremely, extremely learned and bookish and self-referential. So the space of the shepherdess is one that, um, that promotes learning and dialogue. And so when um, Isabella and Sibylla, the shepherdesses of the Bisham Entertainment, are engaging in this debate with Pan, um, they're using classical allusions uh, to defend their own positions of chastity. Um, so Shakespeare takes up that idea of uh, shepherdesses and literacy in As You Like It when the shepherdess Phoebe writes a very taunting letter to Ganymede. And he makes fun of it, of course, but the idea of, and the connection between uh, authorship and literacy and the shepherdess is something that Shakespeare is very much attuned to. Um, with nymphs, nymphs instead are creatures of swirling fabrics and fancy footwork and dance and movement. Uh, they're the physical, elusive uh, creatures of also of classical uh, mythology and also of the pastoral. Um, but they are much more evocative of beautiful costumes and dance. Um, so when, um, when, when Richard III talks about the wanton ambling nymph, um, which gave me the title for my chapter on nymphs, he's talking about and evoking that aspect of, um, of physical, of physical movement. Um, he just, he says, I, I, uh, that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. We can even hear in the way that that very cramped scansion, rudely stamped and want love's majesty. It's like, how does that fit into iambic pentameter? Gets beautifully resolved. We can almost hear the footsteps of the wanton ambling nymph that he's evoking, that he's not able to match. He's not able to strut. Uh, so I wonder if uh, Elizabeth Russell was uh, 
being very intentional and in casting her daughters as shepherdesses rather than nymphs and appealing to Elizabeth and getting them a place at court. You are absolutely right about that, Elspeth. I think the idea of these bookish, quiet shepherdesses rather than the party animals uh, definitely helped sell her uh, her plan to um, to Elizabeth to admit her daughters to court. Although I do understand they did get in a bit of trouble once they uh, were there. Perhaps they had a little bit of both in them. Um, <laughs> yes. As many of us do. But um, in the last chapter of your book, you explore how some early modern girls turned to contemporary knowledge, so away as much from the classical world, for inspiration in their own writings, um, particularly knowledge associated with this burgeoning of globalization and trade. Um, could you tell us about one of the girls you profile here and how her own girlhood reading or experiences impacted her creative output? I would love to tell you about Elizabeth Carey, who is known as the author, the first female author of an original drama in English, The Tragedy of Miriam. And she occupies a kind of very important canonical position in um, the, the history of uh, women's writing. But as a girl, as of, of about 11 years of age, she translated Ortelius's Teatrum Orbis Terrarum, which was the first atlas, um, which had been translated into French. Probably she used the French translation um, and published and was a tremendously uh, popular uh, work in the um, 16th century. And she translated this um, this atlas um, at um, at her home in Burford Abbey, and she translated these very detailed descriptions and accounts of geographical locations. And if you look at a frontispiece to an edition of um, of Ortelius's uh, Teatrum. Even the word Teatrum gives us a sense of where the inspiration may lie to write uh, a drama. But the, um, the frontispiece includes four um, heroic uh, female figures, uh, Europe, uh, America, Asia, and Africa. And we can imagine how, as a girl, Elizabeth might have encountered this image and perhaps felt inspired to think about female characters in terms of geographical identity. And so then when she comes to write the tragedy of Miriam, which is very much a play about the opposition between Rome and Jerusalem and characterizes so many of its female characters in terms of those geographical locations. Miriam is identified throughout with Jerusalem and Cleopatra is often referenced, um, again, tagged as Egyptian. The figure Salome also figured as uh, identified in terms of, of Africa. So, this habit of mind, um, uh, this this geographical imaginary that Elizabeth represents, we can we really locate its origins in her her translation of um, of Ortelius, which she dedicated to her uncle Sir Henry Lee, who um, was also involved in entertainments for Queen Elizabeth. He was a very famous Elizabethan courtier. Um, and um, the Ditchley portrait of Elizabeth, um, where Elizabeth is represented sitting on a map, um, is named for his own home. So we can see this connection between um, Elizabeth Carey and her family uh, through geography and travel and the way that that gets represented and infused into um, this very significant piece of um, women's literary history, the tragedy of Miriam. So even girls sitting at home in England could uh, start to think in global ways in this era. Exactly right. 
that was what they needed to do because their geographical lives or their their lives were geographically circumscribed so often mm. elizabeth herself was often kept at home under kind of house arrest by her mother-in-law and then her husband so um so geography and geographical reading would have provided an amazing imaginative outlet mm. So you characterize girl culture as, quote, a book about the richness of presence rather than absence. Um, and indeed, your work is full of lively, intelligent girl performers and authors demonstrating the significant influence of girls and girlhood on the medieval and early modern dramatic worlds. Um, so of all the pieces you discuss on a personal note, do you have a favorite to read or see performed or maybe one that you'd want to see performed if it hasn't yet made it on stage? I am currently involved in the film production of The Concealed Fancies, um, a play written by Lady Elizabeth Brackley and Lady Jane Cavendish um, around 1644-1645. I wrote about The Concealed Fancies in my book, Shakespeare and the Performance of Girlhood, um, and I also write about it again in in this book on girl culture. Um, it's a favorite of mine because it's so extremely funny. Um, and it really at, at attacks, I think, this question head on of how to resolve um, the wonderful girlhoods that so many um, elite girls enjoyed in this period um, with access to uh, to libraries and books and teachers and art and music um, and the more circumscribed lives that they were uh uh, facing as uh, wives or mothers, um, uh, they really they really address the issue of um, how can you maintain your status as a girl. The word they use for it is mistress. Um, when uh, when you are still a wife, and mistress, of course, refers both to a kind of an unmarried girl, um, but also uh, you know to the idea of being a, a a lover, a beloved. Right? How do you keep that that energy alive in marriage? Right? So um, yes, it's definitely one of my favorites. And with my um, my colleague John Edwards, my longstanding uh, colleague and artistic director of the Musicians in Ordinary. Um, and our collaborator, Paul Hopkins, who's the director, we have been working on a production of The Concealed Fancies, which takes a little bit of a liberty by providing a narrative frame of the pandemic um, to draw a parallel between our own experiences of the pandemic, which we all shared, um, and the situation of Elizabeth and Jane as they were writing the concealed fancies under a kind of a house arrest during the Civil War when their father um, and their brother were out fighting the um, royalist cause um, and they were left at home to uh, to keep um, to keep the home fires burning. Um, and so um, it it creates a kind of frame where uh, there's a student production uh, of the Concealed Fancies that is planned, but then is shut down because of the pandemic. And so everything has to move to Zoom. And so the, um, the scenes of the Concealed Fancies are filmed uh, over Zoom and using various uh, other kind of social media platforms. There's a great TikTok moment. Um, and um, so, yeah, so creating a kind of a contemporary frame for understanding um, this very favorite play of mine. Um, so it's we're still in the editing process, but I'm hoping it will be finished really soon. Well, that sounds like an amazing project. I, I look forward to seeing it, uh, whatever it it uh, makes its way forth into the world. Um, I will be sure to share it with you, Elspeth. Well, thank you so much, Deanne, for being on the show today. We're at about time. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you and hearing about your work um, in this book. Thank you so much, Elspeth. It was a joy to chat with you today. Um, and to our audience, thank you for joining us for this discussion of Girl Culture in the Middle Ages and Renaissance by Deanne Williams. I've been your host, Elspeth Curry, and you've been listening to new books in early modern history. Take care. <laughs>